This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Something I've noticed more and more over the past several years are the statements about climate change from the world's leading spiritual leaders. After Hurricane Irma in 2017, Pope Francis was quite clear on his views, stating, You can see the effects of climate change with your own eyes, and scientists tell us clearly the way forward. All of us have a responsibility, all of us, some small, some big, a moral responsibility to accept opinions or make decisions. I think it is not something to joke about. Those who deny it, climate change, should go to the scientists and ask them. They are very clear, very precise. Furthermore, in 2015, the Dalai Lama said, This is not a question of one nation or two nations. This is a question of humanity. Our world is our home. There is no other planet where we may move or shift. Also, during the Paris climate discussions in 2016, 270 interfaith leaders signed and released a joint statement available at interfaithstatement2016.org saying, quote, Caring for the earth is our shared responsibility. Each one of us has a moral responsibility to act. So this is a show about religion and culture, but it's also a statement about humanity. Apparently, religious leaders find the issue important enough to tie into their work. I find this issue important enough to tie into my work as well. Today my guest is Mary DeMocker. Mary DeMocker is co-founder and creative director of 350.org's Eugene, Oregon chapter. She has written about conscious parenting and climate activism for The Sun, EcoWatch, Mothering.com, Spirituality and Health, Oregon Quarterly, and The Oregonian. She is the author of The Parent's Guide to Climate Revolution, 100 Ways to Build a Fossil-Free Future, Raise Empowered Kids, and Still Get a Good Night's Sleep, out now, from New World Library. Her website and blog are www.marydemacher.com. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Mary DeMacher. My guest today is author and activist Mary DeMacher, author of the new The Parent's Guide to the to Climate Revolution, and it's out now from New World Library. Mary, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. And thank you so much for having me. Since this is a show mostly about religion, and we're going to be talking a lot about climate, um, I would like to ask if you could start off by reciting the morning prayer that you recite each morning. Yes, yeah, very, very helpful to me. May I rise grateful for this day. May I return the world's generosity. May I love others and above all, myself. May I discern, but not judge. May I remember that those who break others are themselves suffering in some way, but still do all I can to stop them. May I channel my grief into effective actions. May I seek spiritual refreshments regularly and help when I need it. May I shelter my family and myself, always remembering that our journey together will be brief. Excellent. Thank you so much. One of the tones of that morning prayer that uh, you just recited reminds me a lot of gratitude and how we can approach each day with a, you know, an, a mindset of gratitude, even with all the challenges facing the world today. And in chapter 40 of your book about gratitude, you said, I often cataloged everything wrong with the world, but not enough about what was right. So to you, what is right with the climate fight in the world right now? It's huge. 
<laughs> so that's one thing that's really right. It's everywhere and it's growing. So that's one thing that's wonderful. It's not just the fight that's growing. It's also the solutions that are growing, whether it's, you know, new legal solutions for holding polluters accountable or new innovations. Um, so that's a, that's a great thing. I had so much more hope during the two years that I did this research than I had going in because I didn't realize how many people are working and on all the different fronts that they're working. So that's one. Another is there's a real push towards eco-justice, you know, environmental justice on a global level. And that's, you know, there's a, a conversation between um, more the developed world uh, people that are working on climate justice and people in the developing world about how to keep things more fair and just because they're profoundly unjust on a global level when it comes to climate destruction. Another great thing is the youth are rising. They're being put forward more. And uh, there's a lawsuit actually here in Eugene that's being uh, waged. It's a national lawsuit, but it's young people, 21 of them, holding the federal government accountable for destroying the planet on which their lives depend. And so they're actually, they've had some incredible victories on the legal front, and they're taking the Trump administration to court starting in, in October this year. So that's another thing that's really going right, is that judges are recognizing the, the crisis, the, the scale of the crisis, and starting to to put that branch of government into into service of the future. And then just one more is, is that there are more leadership trainings for young people in all the different grassroots groups and um, there are more and more ecological, you know, study programs that are trying to not just teach people the science, the young people the science, but teach them the civics. Oh, I should say one more. The rise of the religious communities, those are those are really um, coming on now as places where people are organizing and they're talking about climate in a in a much different way, more as, you know, creation care and as love for the planet and as something that we do as stewards of this gift that we've been given. Lovely. Um, and I know that, you know, with your brand new book out, everybody could check out this book as well. Um, do you also have some people that you feel a lot of gratitude to in this moment? I am so grateful. I have such a long acknowledgments page in the back of my book because so many people helped to bring this to fruition. First of all, my husband and my children, because I've written, I've written this from the point of view of, of a mother as a parent. So that's one place I feel tremendous gratitude towards the support um, for my, for my family. I'm also grateful for all the people who mentored me in this process and for all the researchers and all of the um, activists out there that are doing the work out there and whose stories I was able to, to bring to this, to this book and who inspired me in countless ways. And there are, there are hun literally hundreds, and I'd probably name about, I don't know, 100 people in, in the back of my book. So for me personally, I have immense gratitude towards the authors, the scientists, the legal um, champions, the, the scholars, the, the, the teachers who are in the classroom doing climate literacy work, and the environmental journalists and the farmers who are, who are trying new ways of, of farming that are releasing less carbon. There's so much going on. It's like this wonderful renaissance on a global level. And that in itself, I think, is cause for celebration. One of those, uh, one of those people that a lot of people might recognize is uh, Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org and author of Oil and Honey and author of Earth. And he wrote the foreword to your book, um, which I absolutely loved. And he, write in the, yes. he writes in the foreword of the book that, ki that eventually kids find out things aren't as they should be. And for me personally, that line jumped out a lot because I remember a lot of the moments in my life where I remembered the insanely poignant disappointment I felt when I realized what a mess my generation and kids um, following me were inheriting that my elders, like those who were supposed to, we were supposed to look up to for guidance, that they weren't only at a standstill on this issue, but we were like going backwards on like the one issue that should be of more importance than anything, which is climate. So 
I'd imagine that you've seen a lot of kids and young people's faces when they realize just how immense this struggle is. Like th- that first moment when they're like, this is so big. So what do you say to people, young people, when they're having that transformative moment and when they feel like they've been failed? Like what do you, how do you handle that initial disappointment? Um, I've seen that in my kids and the first thing I do is validate it. And the second thing I do is tell them that they're not alone and that there are lots of people working very hard on turning things around. And I think just knowing that there, that there are other people who feel that way is, is helpful, but it also gives them an opportunity when they learn that there are so many people working in all these different ways. It gives them an opportunity to decide, do they want to take action themselves? Do they want to engage? And if so, how? And for my kids, it was heartbreaking to watch them as they got older um, realize how badly the ruling generation is failing them. And I remember once my son just saying, that is just so stupid. Don't adults care about what happens to us? Hmm. And to me, what's really interesting is I've never understood that. And I've always wondered, like, do people just not care about this because they're going to be dead before us? Like, what is it? Does that make sense? I've heard people say that. I've heard people say, oh, things are so bad, but you know what? I'm going to be gone. And I, I can't relate to that. I, it's just a, a, like talking to an alien for me in terms of, I just, I can't understand why we wouldn't want to do everything to return the gifts that were given of life on the earth, this beautiful, beautiful earth and the generosity of the soil and the water and the air and the generations before us who have, who have made a, a, a stable society for us to live in and thrive in. I mean, look at look at what we've enjoyed over the last century, the incredible democratic progresses and voting for more and more people and, and the institutions of government that are, you know, universities and libraries and, and bridges and roads and all the things that connects us as a society, a civilized society. And don't you want to give back for all those gifts that you didn't have anything to do with creating. And I think that's, um, so I just, I, I, all I can do is, is offer to people what I would do, what I am doing, which is trying to give back to to the generosity of the planet and to my ancestors who worked so hard to bring, to keep us safe. You know, my, my, the great, great, grandparents that sacrificed for my grandparents and my grandparents who sacrificed for my parents who sacrificed for me and I'm doing the same for my own children and it's not doesn't even feel like sacrifice it feels like love yeah yeah and you know what you said like I don't understand what they feel like or why they would think that way and you know what I don't even really know if I want to understand what that feels like do you know what I mean like I don't I don't want to know what that feels like to be so cynical and so bitter that you just basically write off future generations ability to survive. Yes, and then at the same time I do know that sometimes people say those things. And when you really engage with what's behind it, you often find despair. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's really so much a, a cavalier attitude as I don't know what to do and so the best I can do is step back. And yeah. just you know, cover cover my own my own butt. You know, yeah. I'll be out of here. I can't figure it out. I didn't create this. And I think if if you're in a conversation with someone who expresses that, and you're and you're in a place where you can explore that without it harming your own conversation or relationship or your own spirit, then you might just ask open-ended questions. You know, yeah. how did how did you come to that? Do you ever feel? What do you care about? What do you love? That's super helpful for me because I could see myself being like, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? So I even need a little help on how to keep those conversations going instead of allowing the conversation to just shut down. So that's really helpful for me as well because I would just, you know, I may fall into cynicism and bitterness against the person who's cynical and bitter in the first place. Well, anger does have a, a good place in this whole conversation. 
And I think we want to be careful, though, about where we're directing our anger. And I believe strongly that we need to be directing it toward the people who are creating the policies that are taking the planet down. Mm -hmm. I think on an individual level, we have to practice some compassion because we've been confused for decades you know, on purpose. There's been a misinformation campaign afoot for, for two decades from the oil industries who are funding climate denial and climate science that's junk science. And that confuses people and it overwhelms people. And I think what I try to do in my book is say, this is very simple. There's no confusion anymore. The planet is heating up. We are responsible and we can turn this around if we act right now. As a parent, that leaves me no other choice than to act. I also want to be compassionate that many people feel overwhelmed by, by example, for example, what's happening now with the current administration doing really kind of taking a sledgehammer to the pillars of our democracy. So, that's overwhelming. so speaking of that, um, politics, um, who is doing the most to help right now? Because we know who's doing terrible things. So who is who is doing really, really good things that we should all th be throwing our, our civic support behind? Well, I mean, to answer that for myself, I think the work that Bernie Sanders is doing is, is groundbreaking because he's, he's really trying to return the Democratic Party to, <clears throat> to something that is true to its progressive roots. And I think that in the last election, we saw a real, a real painful, really painful exposure of where we stand with money flowing into the political system. So I would say that the politicians who are doing the most are those who are calling out the dark money in politics, who are wanting to stop the torrent of, of fossil fuel and industry and corporate money into politics when we, they can outright buy politicians. And so Bernie Sanders, our revolution. In, indivisible that group is doing wonderful work um in terms of empowering people to take back the their civic power so i can i can name particular uh politicians you know governor jay inslee is doing a good job on climate and senator jeff merkley here in oregon is doing a good job um president Mohammed nasheed of the maldives is you know one of those people who's speaking out or spoke out before he was, um, you know, deposed, and it's you know the Maldives is suffering um, from that takeover. But there are people on the global stage who are working hard to try to have a global agreement, and there are people in our own country who are trying to work on the state level now that the federal government has basically been taken over by the fossil fuel industry. And that's where we need to look. Who's your local person? So I don't. I think it's important not to look to the, you know, the people at the necessarily at the top. Although it's good to support them and follow their lead because they have power, but to also recognize our own power on the local level and the power of our whoever we're voting for at our local utilities. Those are positions of power. So right now, a lot of the environmental organizations are switching to the local level and looking at who is who are the candidates that are truly protecting soil and air and water, and how can you help them? Nice. Um, what's your, I, I just have a random question. What's your take on the president of France, Emmanuel Macron? Um, what, you mean specifically around climate? Around climate? Yeah. Um, I think anybody who's, I, I'm, in, I'm not super versed on, honestly, on what his, um, what he's done this week. It seems like, He's doing, I don't know, I, I feel like I can't really uh, speak to that very well. I'm not super up to date on that. Yeah, that makes sense because he, he's just a confusing figure to me because he'll do things like make our planet great again and invite all the American scientists who are working on climate to move to France. And then he will cozy up to the United States administration. I just can't really get a read on him. I was just curious well, if you I'm, did. Yeah, I'm more, I'm more following uh, Justin Trudeau who, who came in on this, you know, he's this guy who kayaks and he's liberal and everybody loves him. And he is completely green lighting the tar sands debacle which is you know that alone can take down the climate and so you know the the pipelines that he's allowing to go in and the bigging up of the tar sands is an appalling 
um, act on his part. And I do not understand how anybody can reconcile those two positions where he's, you know, trying to get carbon tax on one hand and, you know, one side of his mouth and then, and then, uh, really supportive of, of Canada being of, you know, such a fossil fuel producer. So that one's more close to home. Yeah. So I'm a high school teacher and what I'm always curious about curious about is how people see the roles of teachers in issues like the ones I talk about on my show. So as a teacher, I'm curious if you've seen any amazing curriculum projects in like public or private schools that have really impressed you. Yes, I would say that, I mean, a couple. One is that Tim Swinehart up in Portland was able to um, help pass the nation's first comprehensive climate literacy policy that was passed by the Portland Public School Board in May 2016. And he um, worked with Bill Bigelow, who wrote a curriculum with him. And I haven't seen that curriculum. I don't have my hands on it yet. But they had a one, there's a wonderful article in Yes Magazine that people can look at about the process and how empowering that was for young people. So I think anything that empowers young people around the climate and around climate literacy is something that we should grab onto. Another thing that people can do is just see what other teachers are doing that has worked. And one of the things that has worked for us right here that I'm the most familiar with is um, a climate literacy approach that Carrie Ann Numoff and Susan Dwoskin at a school here in Eugene did that I was able to sort of see um, firsthand. And they um, they have a combination of studying in fifth grade the Constitution and the climate. And they um, decided to ask children what they cared about. What is it that you love? What do you want to protect? And from that vantage point, children were able to engage more with the climate science and um, and then they brought it to the civic realm. So when we had a, a hearing down here in Eugene for that climate uh, lawsuit that I mentioned earlier, the kids wanted to come down and be part of that because it, they were so excited that another child was suing the government yeah. for, for destroying the climate. So they came up with this, you know, I worked with them to come up with this, this tribunal. So they were doing outside the courthouse what was happening inside the courthouse. What was happening inside the courthouse was that the two, two of the plaintiffs that were there that day were telling the judge, here's what we stand to lose if you don't take action. And they named the things, their coastlines, salmon dinners, and all the things that were they were losing. And and one of the plaintiffs, Kelsey Juliana, asked those students, you know, when they had her come speak before the, the, the hearing, she said, well, why don't you do what I'm doing inside? You do it outside. Tell the crowd out there in the media what you love and what you want to protect. So 75 kids made big posters and they, they just lined up and they marched up to the microphone and, you know, the mayor spoke first and PBS NewsHour was there. They had sent out a second camera just for this. And the kids marched across one by one or in pairs and they talked about what they love and they showed their poster. And that was something that was a highlight of the entire year for most of those kids because they, they felt that they made an impact and they felt that they were seen and that they were heard. And that I think is a really important aspect of teaching civics in the classroom is first of all, showing people how they can be heard and you know the venues for that because it's not something that we know or teach as much in the schools anymore, but then actually mentoring them in having that happen. Excellent. And I know the uh, the name Bill Bigelow quite well. I come from the social studies education world and Bill Bigelow is a is a towering figure in my field. So thanks Great. for bringing thanks for bringing him up cuz he's uh he's been around a long time. I want to just throw in one more the the Yale Climate Communications um is an online resource and they have a stellar science and it's a wonderful place to just check in with climate what's up to date with climate and the newest science but they also just published a list of books exactly for this for communicating the climate science in different ways to different groups and some of them are to young people and in the classroom so people can google that the yale climate collect yale climate communications and their their resource uh, guides for classrooms nice 
My favorite thing about your book is that you offer 100 strategies that parents can do with their kids. And I just Mm -hmm. love that because, as you mentioned in your intro, all the chapters are meant to be read in like one sitting and you can read them totally out of order. I mean, it's like the perfect busy parent, like hectic (laughs) lifestyle book for people who care about this. So you really nailed it for me in that regard. Um, Which one of the strategies is like the most fun for you? For me, anything that involves kids and the arts, whether it's music or or spoken word or, you know, plays or video or the stuff that we've done, you know, in my family, now my block, we did it on our front lawn. There's, we've done a lot of interactive art. And I think that is, for me, that's kind of what I live for, honestly. Mm-hmm. I love creating with young people. Their ideas are so wacky and so fun and so, I don't know, innocent. So that's what the most fun for me is an an example of that is for the 2014 people's climate March. I, it was my first time since I was in my twenties of, you know, trying to co-organize a climate March. It was the first real climate March in Eugene. And I decided that we needed something different, not just to have people speaking and, you know, talking in the crowd and kind of soapboxing and then leading us through downtown. I wanted something that would touch people more. So I wrote a spoken word theater piece and I invited this multicultural uh, theater troupe, a a youth group. Um, And they come over to my house and they learned this thing and they kind of made it their own and changed it. And, um, they so we had one girl from from Ethiopia, a boy from Mexico, and then a, a Jewish girl from the United States, and they like they had a blast. They used carrots and hairbrushes as microphones to practice, and they just nailed it. And they had so much fun. Then they jumped on the trampoline for a while and then came back to rehearse some more. And there was such a joy to it. They had they loved each other. They loved the material. They loved that they got to change it. And then when they got to that day where there were 500 people and they had never performed like this before as a, at a protest, they got that crowd just really rocking and going. And then they led the whole thing. <laughs> so the crowd parted. They did their, you know, their, their spoken word and then it turned into chanting and then they, the pr- crowd parted and they left, you know, through the crowd and then the crowd followed them all through downtown and they kept that chant going for an hour solid. And there was a joy to it and a connection to it. And uh, that, I haven't seen often at a protest. Nice. If somebody's looking for like a challenge and like they want to like do something that's kind of hard, but like it will be really worthwhile in the end, which one of the strategies in the book to you is like the most challenging? <laughs> I'd say anything that takes a lot of time because my book is written for parents and I'm <laughs> the thing that's hardest is a lot of um, time uh, consuming things. So, to me, one thing that's hard and time-consuming that is um, does make a difference is showing up to push on public policy. So, for example, here in Eugene, we had a climate recovery ordinance that was actually initiated by a group of young people. And they wanted Eugene to be the first city in the nation, maybe even in the world, to have clear science-based goals and a timeline for that. And they that to be accountable for that. And so these kids went for 10 months straight. They went twice a month. They would show up at city council and they would testify and say, you got to do this climate recovery ordinance. They got the mayor behind it. They got some of the council people behind it. They did public education. They did artwork in the community. They did media training and they did interviews. And that was super time consuming, but they won. They got that climate recovery ordinance passed. So that's something challenging right there. Yeah. Um, I want to pivot over to something um, more in alignment with like the, like the long-term like mission of classical ideas. And that is the religious leaders that you mention in the books. You mentioned tons of religious leaders who say that we need to keep carbon in the ground. Um, which spiritual leaders in the world stand out to you the most? Well, the Pope, he certainly, that the encyclical that he wrote in 2015 is an unbelievably beautiful and powerful document. And that's something if, you know, if people haven't read it, it's free, it's online at the websites in my book. And that, I think it's an 84-page document or so that I, I found a stunning thing to sit down and read. And he has been a real leader on the global level for um, the moral aspect of climate recovery and climate justice. 
the Unitarian Universalists are really on it too. They were the first to divest. So as a community, that is a particularly powerful group that's doing good work um, on, in their congregations. Another global leader is the Dalai Lama, who um, is calling global warming a problem that human beings created. And he's saying that all of humanity is now responsible for taking action. And he's also, I saw him when he came through Eugene, um, I don't know, maybe three or four years ago, and he said very clearly that action is more important than prayer for all of these crises on the world, you know, the economic disparities now and the wars and the pollution and the climate crisis, that we have to, praying is good for ourselves, good for our, our own peace and our own centeredness in the world. And this really struck me, this interview where he said this, but for the world itself, you have to take action. To actually make change in the world requires us to take action, and humanity needs to do that now. And they're all speaking out more and more. And and especially, the last one I want the last one I want to mention is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, because he goes very far in terms of what action items he recommends, and has something called a call to action saying that we really need to demand from our political leaders, you know, it's a four-point plan that we need to freeze further exploration for new fossil fuels and hold people accountable for climate damages and encourage governments to stop accepting money from the fossil fuel industry. And his fourth one is to divest from fossil fuels and instead invest in a clean energy future. So that's, he lays it out on his, um, in his works and on his, his talks. I'm on page 191 of your book right now, and so is the Pope's encyclical called um, Laudato Si? Is that how yes. you say it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Latin. Yes. Yeah, and it's uh, it's L-A-U-D-A-T-O-S-I dot com, where you can read the whole thing for free. And you've got this great list of organizations here, the Buddhist Climate Action Network, Catholic Climate Covenant, um, the Jewish Climate Action Network, Operation NOAA, Young Evangelicals for the Climate Action. So this is really great. It's something that's like interfaith. It's like across many different religious traditions. It's not like um, just in one thing or being completely ignored by others. Like it seems like you can be any religion and jump into this. And um, there's a group for you if you find yourself being a religious figure who cares about climate action. Yes. Nice. Yes. So... Um, we talked about the Pope, and I, I love this passage in your book on page 190, where it says, Compassion is a powerful angle. People of faith make up the majority of the world's population. And in the United States, 80% identify as Christian. At the heart of Christianity is Jesus' love and compassion for the poor, vulnerable, and suffering, which includes those brutalized by climate action. Now, obviously, I can't... By climate change. Oh, climate change, sorry. Uh, Climate change, sorry. I did misquote that at the end. Um, I can't speak for the Pope or anything, but I feel like he might think that climate inaction is like the antithesis of Christianity. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, I I guess I wouldn't want to speak to that. Um, (laughs) Do you you see it as like the antithesis of like the um, spiritual traditions that guide um, us as humans? I guess I, um, I would personally, I withhold my judgment on some, on, what it means if someone is not active on climate justice, because I think that we need to approach this crisis holistically. I don't think it's you're you know anti-spiritual or anti-Christian because you're not active. I would like to ask, well, what you know are is it because maybe someone's you know they're not sure what to do, or maybe they're caring. All they can do is care for their very ill child, or maybe all they can do at a given time is successfully go through rehab. I don't know why someone isn't active and I can't make those choices for people or judge them because I don't know where people are on their spiritual paths or why. That said though, in North America, I feel that there's a lot of disengagement between our spiritual paths and our political um, policies. And I think it's time for us to really start having those conversations about, you know, working for our own spirituality and sense of peace and our health and our mindfulness, but also making sure that other people are able to experience, um, you know, just fundamental survival. And, and not only other people on, the, on other parts of the planet, and that's a huge issue, but also 
the people in the future, our, our own children. You know, how are you living now and how are you engaging in, in the future in terms of what kind of life and health and justice issues your own children are going to be facing? And I think for those who, who do have some time and do have, you know, they're not struggling for survival and they're choosing not to engage in the climate crisis. That's when I would, if I had the opportunity, gently remind them that our lifestyle in North America and the political toxicity of our government now on the world stage is causing other human beings harm. It's killing other people. It's threatening all of life for all of time. And when we really take that in and think about what we are doing now when there is another option if we do it quickly enough to to be inactive or to be paralyzed or to choose to to kind of step back because it's too painful or confusing i would just ask how are we how are we going to look back on our deathbeds at this moment that we're in right now where the world is striving towards you know reversing climate destruction reversing we're talking about humanity going potentially extinct in coming decades in our own children's lifetimes what do you want to say that you did at this pivotal moment in history and i i would point people to kathleen dean moore's book moral ground and and there she has these wonderful um questions about what is it that you would do for for the world what do you live for what would you die to protect what do you love and to come at it from that point of view to see that we can each dig down into what it is that makes us take action and what's standing in the way and i i have a story in my book about it's in the chapter called be here now where i was at a, a retreat center and i met some buddhist practitioners and they didn't have children, and um, they were kind of um, gently chastising me for being attached, you know, to when I told them when I was writing this book, you know, being uh, kind of maybe I was being a little dramatic and um, calling in the negative and attached to the future and trying to control things. And that really struck me. And I said, so you don't have children, do you? Mm. And they said, no, we don't. And, and his response was, you know, if whales go extinct, that's okay with me. And I said, well, you know what? It's not okay with me. It's not okay with me that other people are dying because of our first world lifestyle or, well, developed world lifestyle. And I, I'm going to do everything I can to make things right. And that's my spiritual practice. That's how I pray. I pray when I dial the phone to call a representative. I pray with my feet when I march. And I, I don't see any other way to be at peace in terms of my own life and that's all I can do is say here's what I'm doing you know bless you on your way if you can live with that maybe a week later he did something different I don't know I'm telling this story it was from years ago you know maybe he's completely in a different space right now or has children but it struck me that many people go to the yoga mat or the temple to 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 have some peace in their lives and to pray and to you know I've heard people say well I'm a contemplative now I don't do politics and I, I think that that's a big um, shrugging off of our responsibility, not only to other people right now on the planet who are suffering in our own communities, not to mention in Africa and Asia that are drying up or, or being flooded, where people are dying and their infrastructures are being torn apart, that are directly attributable to our, our pollution in the atmosphere, that the developed world has has completely spewed out toxins in the atmosphere for decades now, and they have, they're breaking down the climate is breaking down and that's directly because of our our policies and our lifestyles so what do, where do people want to go with that mm -hmm. a few minutes ago you kind of alluded to uh, a concept in the book that is north american privilege and i had you know i, I i've considered the these concepts before it's just that north american privilege in particular was a new one to me and you kind of discovered north american privilege by talking to people who care about climate action who live in other countries like people who live in like ukraine was a big example that you cited in the book what um i'd like to hear more about this because I had never really considered that our our protests here are big and um, lively because 
Um, I wish they were bigger and livelier, it seems like. But mm-hmm. it seems like in other places, like they think that we our protests are like huge because they feel maybe like nervous. I'd like to hear a little bit more about North American privilege with regards to climate. Yeah, so I, I discovered that when I was speaking to a group of Europeans a couple of years ago, um, students who were from underprivileged backgrounds that were chosen to come here to Oregon to study environmental science um, in a place that's vibrant. There's a lot of protests, there's a lot of innovation out here, and um, there's a lot of a lot happening in the university systems around climate, you know, the science and the and the innovations and and new policy. So this is a very thriving area that we're in. And 22 young people came and I gave them a presentation about what I do, which is what I call creative disrupt, disruption. Creative disruption being that you you disrupt business as usual with something so creative that it, people can't help but notice. And you know I've done this block long pipeline on my on my uh, my block in my neighborhood with my family in 350 to call attention to the fracked gas export pipeline that we're fighting here in Oregon. So, I, you know, I had slides of that and slides of other creative projects we've done that were, you know, large puppets and, you know, f- uh, human sculptures that we've filmed from the air that were <laughs> spelled out, you know, off clean, dirty energy and mm-hmm. unclean. So they were, they sat and listened to all this and were interested in it. And then I said, okay, well, we have another hour. Tell me about what you're doing. Tell me about your climate movements. And some of them said, "Mm, we're, you know, we're in the Eastern black countries. There's no movement there. There are no groups to fight the the coal plants that are, you know, filling our kids lungs with toxins. And that really led me to start exploring more what, what other people are experiencing in other parts of the world. I thought of, I think of Europe as, you know, leading the way in many ways because Western Europe is, but there are many places in the world where people either don't have access to even grassroots movements, you know, grassroots groups where they can express their concerns, but um, they're being killed in many places in the world. And in um, 2017, there were 200 environmental advocates that were killed, mostly indigenous people on the front lines in places in um, Africa and Central America in particular. And that's something that we need to take note of, that there are people fighting toxic, um, you know, extractive industries and palm oil plantations in their own communities who are being killed. And so I think one thing we need to notice is that in North America, you know, we often feel like, oh, we don't have privacy and, you know, things are getting so bad and the government is, you know, just tilting to the right and, we're not being killed in our beds like the Honduran activist um, Bertas Caceres was murdered in her bed because she was successfully leading a movement against an, an extractive industry. And she was a beloved person in the community. So that's just something we need to notice, that we are safe for the time being, but we have to fight for the people who can't fight or that are risking too much to fight. When you hear about people like that who are killed um, for standing up for this issue that we can so readily and easily and freely demonstrate for, does that make you just want to fight harder on their behalf? Absolutely. I mean, I think that we need to recognize who who has privilege. And I think that I have a lot of privilege. I'm healthy. I'm um I was given education. I'm supported enough by my work and by uh, my husband, who who floats more of the financial boat than I do, and that has given me um, an incredible opportunity to speak out. And I look around and I see particularly retired people who aren't really sure what to do with their days. They're sometimes lonely or a little bit at a loss. And I think, well, join us because we sure need you. And there are people all over the planet who don't have what you have, which is your 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 health, your your financial stability. There are people with 11 children who are needing to fight, you know, extractive industries right down the street who are you know, fracking, poisoning their water, their children's water. So we have to recognize where we are on the kind of the <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy of, you know, human needs. And if, if you're basically covered, then this is a wonderful time for you to look around and notice 
what is going on in the world and the emergency that we're in and, and grab your little piece that you can do to try to put out the fire on the global level. That's, you know, this, this literally, you know, the, the West was on fire last year and we need to really face the fact that we are taking this planet down unless we turn things around right now. Speaking of looking around and noticing, I was driving across Kansas last summer from going from Missouri where I live to Colorado and I was really struck by Kansas's huge wind farms and their how how massive and how endless they seemed. Hmm. Um, and so Kansas and Missouri are fairly similar politically speaking. Um Yet they have so much more wind energy than what I've seen in my state, which is only now bringing on some wind farms online in the Kansas City region. So I know we talked a lot about the local and looking around and all these different strategies. And I see a place like Kansas that's really politically similar to where I live. Um, What can people do in like areas that don't have things like wind farms or giant solar investment to try to help bring these new energies and technologies into our lives? Well, I think um, first I want to say that it makes sense that Kansas would have all those wind farms because according to that book, Drawdown, which is a great book for people to read, uh, by the way, edited by Paul Hawken that has a hundred you know, solutions, science-based solutions for, for the crisis we find ourselves in. But according to that book, Um, There's one quote they have that said the wind energy potential of just three states, Kansas, North Dakota, and Texas, would be sufficient to meet electricity demand from coast to coast. Unbelievable. Yeah. So there you go. Kansas was one of the three names. So they must have a lot of wind, right? I mean, that's – I don't know if it has anything to do with politics. It might have a lot more to do with wind and – Um, I think that's what we need to do is just look around at what our states have. Florida has sunshine and they just passed, they just passed some policies making it easier and more affordable for homeowners and renters to lease um, solar panels uh, from their, on their roofs from other companies. And that was something that wasn't even legal or feasible before. So that's, again, that's a policy change that allows people to, to exploit this free abundant mm-hmm. energy coming from the sun. So that's, you know, that's what Florida should do. That's, you know, Arizona, all the the sun splashed states. People can be working on making sure that they get, you know, solar access for people that that don't have the income to buy their own uh, their own solar systems for their homes. So that's one thing to do is look at what you've got in your state. Do you have hydro? Do you have wave power? Do you have in-stream hydro? Do you have more sun? W- what's in your region? And and I think it's also important to say yes to clean energy. That's That's a really important thing to do. But the flip side of that is that we also have to say no to the new fossil fuel infrastructure that the Trump administration is trying to ram down our throats with this infrastructure, you know, uh, campaign that they're on. They want to unleash $50 trillion of fossil fuels from our lands and our seas. And they want to do it by more fracking, more coal mining, more oil drilling. And that's something that we really need to take note of right now is that this means there's a fight everywhere in the U.S. There's nobody that's exempt from this anymore. There's fracking sites proposed, more oil train routes, new pipeline routes being proposed, new drilling proposed on every shoreline of every state, on public land You know that, that they're taking back so that they can mine it and drill it. And so we really have to, right now, give equal time or more time to saying no to new fossil fuel infrastructure that will lock our children into dirty energy for the next half century. So you are, you seem, I mean, obviously very informed on this. And and you also mentioned how rampant media consumption has like driven you crazy in your life. And that's something that I totally related <laughs> with. Like during the 2016 election, like anybody who was my friend on Facebook was like, Greg, give it a rest. Seriously. Um, 
So what do you, do you have any sources that you would recommend for people to like stay informed on like a daily basis that's like, um, you know, pretty quick to consume, that's like not going to make us all go nuts um, with too much like overwhelming amounts of news? Well, I would have to say that I, um, I get a lot of my stuff, honestly, from Facebook and Twitter. And I'm, you know, I'm on like the Guardian for me because I'm writing about climate. I I look at the Guardian a lot and Yale Climate Connections and Climate Wire and Inside Climate News. So that's where I go for climate information. I I keep it to a minimum because I find unless I'm doing research, um, I find that I can get pulled in. I'm easily distractible. So if I sometimes look at something, I I can get drawn into some of those. I don't click on the clickbait stuff, but I do find that I can go down the little the rabbit hole. So what I do is the, the ones that I mentioned, and I keep it to a minimum. Honestly, I read a lot more in-depth articles in magazines like um, uh, Yes and Orion and Sierra and um, some of the ecological ones, and and I do more of the uh, the analysis, so the deeper looks into things. Um, so that's the best I can do. I do keep up in the sense of knowing what's trending by just every time I go to the grocery store a couple times a week, I scan the New York Times and the local paper. And people tell me if there's something up, you know, my neighbors will, they know that I don't take in much media. And they'll <laughs> say, Mary, did you hear about this? You know, there's a, a new shooting or a new something. There's a, um, so I'm not, I'm not, like locked away in a box, but I definitely do not listen to the radio in general or, um, or have TV in my home and podcasts like yours are wonderful. And, um, I think people can find the ones that bring, uh, the important news like brains on is great for families. It's by and for kids that's science and that's a helpful one. Excellent. Um, so, Mary, thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Um, I've really enjoyed going through the Parents' Guide to Climate Revolution, which is brand new, out now, New World Library, and highly recommended. Um, and I'm hoping that you can close our discussion today with your evening prayer, which is, uh, you know, the ending to what you started off with, which was your morning prayer. Yes, yes, I'd be happy to. May I now rest knowing I've loved well today. May I reflect on this day, not in self-reproach, but with curiosity and kindness. May I thank my hardworking body with rest and replenishment. May my family enjoy deep, peaceful sleep and good dreams. May I be open to tomorrow's unimagined possibilities. And And may I wake with restored hope, grateful for the new day. Mary DeMacher, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you. It's been my honor. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.